welcome back, Calm listeners. This is Methodical Millions, where you can better your future and better yourself. Cal, I'm pumped up today because we've got another guest joining us. So everyone, please welcome Nick Scalf. Nick, how's it going? And what gets you excited about life? Hey guys, really nice to meet you. Have you guys in my ear for the past week or so, so it's cool to actually get to have a live conversation. What gets me pumped about life? Honestly, it's all the opportunity that's going on everywhere. I feel like everywhere you turn, there's some crazy new invention, some new innovation going on. And I've heard you guys talk a lot about crypto. I think that's one of the spaces where there's a lot happening. And I'm just excited seeing people do all of these exciting things. Yeah, thanks for joining us. When did you first actually fall in love with crypto? Was it recently or were you an early adopter? I always love hearing people's story. I actually saw a tweet, I think by Naval. He had said, it's both too early and too late. And I guess what he's trying to say is just get started and the space is ever evolving. So what's your story with crypto? How did it start? Yeah, well, it's funny you, you called it fall in love with crypto. I definitely didn't fall in love with it in the beginning. It was an interesting little side project. I was learning how to code and I'm like, oh, I'll make my computer a little miner. Joined some mining group. However much crypto I had is totally gone. Someone ran away and they're living it up big right now, probably. I probably started 2016, 2017, something like that. In college, no real money. I didn't really benefit from starting early and started actually investing with some real money in the big run up towards 2018. And had a few of those early crypto experiences where you go to like a sketchy Italian exchange and you move over like $5,000 of some crypto that doesn't exist anymore. And, you know, the exchange gets hacked, you lose all of it. And you're like, there goes a third of my money. Let's maybe back off a little bit. Yeah. I want to say that's almost like a rite of passage in crypto. I always call it the wild west. I'm in Canada. So the exchange I use is called CoinSquare. And I remember wiring money and being super nervous because they're not responding to emails. They don't have an office. And I'm on their Twitter. I'm like trying to be like, hey, did you get my money? It's a lot of money. You know, I'm freaking out. And then I found out they had an old version of a website where you can go to where it says processing. I'm like, hey, are they day trading with my money? Why is it in my account? And I think the stress level is high because there's not a trust factor developed like there are with banks and you can't go to a branch and complain, you know? So definitely, I mean this in the nicest way possible. I'm not at all happy that you had to go through those pains, but (laughs) it's just part of the learning experience. So can we talk about that? Because I think what the moral of the story is, people who get into it shouldn't expect just an easy time. And number two, why do you keep going back? What makes you so interested in it that it's worth going through the scams and the wild west of it all? Yeah, so I think the first time you go into it, it's curiosity. Something's weird. What's going on here? People are trading internet points and, hey, my buddy just made $600,000 off internet points. Okay, I'll listen. (laughs) What are you saying? What should I do? The second time I think you go back after you've been burnt, it's greed, right? You're like, okay, wait, there's really something here. I messed up the first time. Let me figure it out. And then the third time you're really there. I'm in it now because I kind of see the vision of it. I really appreciate the people who saw the vision early right? Like I went in there early because I'm learning how to code and this is a new phase of the internet. Like, sure, let's see. But I kind of believe what everyone said, it's a tool looking for something to solve. And that just doesn't really work when you build businesses. Yeah. I think 
the important point here is that if you look at the internet, everyone and their mom uses an iPhone and the internet and is connected in some way. These technologies take time to mature. And if you look at something like email, which is ever persistent, it's become the backbone of so many businesses, customer facing internally. And now some hip or modern businesses have gone to things like Slack, DMs and all that for, you know, managing customers. But I think the point is just being aware and excited about tools and technology. I always call myself a techie guy. I feel like you're either branded as techie sports or cars. And I think my number one brand identity would be tech. I've always liked tech and computers and things like that. So it's just exciting because I think you said it best, which is it's opportunity. It's something different. You're not being told what to do when you play around with it. Like I've always been told, stop playing video games or stop, you know, using computers. And then my mom would always, you know, get mad at me for hours on end. And then I remember one of my first jobs, I was doing some, I forget if it was like basic Microsoft paints or some Photoshop, something that was useful and just firing on the computer and getting it done. And people start asking like, how did you learn that? I was like, I'm self-taught. So, I mean, there's this only backwards appreciation for the skills and the things you develop as you follow your passions and lean into your hobbies. So I think it's awesome. And my favorite thing about crypto is that no one knows what's going on. When you talk about things like NFTs, it's so new that even the pros, like it's an even playing field. So whether you want to be intricate, like a coder or just throw $10, everyone can participate. It's very democratized. It's decentralized. You don't need to be living in a certain place, go to the right schools. So I think it's the encapsulation of what you said, which is opportunity and a better life. Yeah. I think you said something interesting in there, which was these things take time to mature and you don't really know what they mature into. Like the current state of things, I think it's not fair to call it cryptocurrency anymore, right? The original idea was like, hey, we're going to make Bitcoin and you know, it's going to replace the dollar. And all we're going to do is like buy and sell everything we do on a daily basis with Bitcoin. And now even like the Bitcoin maximalists are like, yeah, it's probably not going to happen. We're probably not going to do that. It's like gold now. You know, there's a lot of things that have changed. And I don't think anyone really saw any of that coming. Decentralized finance, people didn't really call that out until pretty recently. Moving the entire art market online is something no one imagined five years ago. Yeah, I just want to jump in and say I've bought a couple NFTs. So OpenSea is one exchange I've used. They're good for just connecting your... I guess MetaMask or I'm a big fan of Coinbase has their own wallet version. And it's funny as you learn, because at first I was like, why does Coinbase have an app and a wallet? It doesn't make sense. But then you realize the wallets for the whole DeFi movement and for the off exchange kind of things. And, you know, just for everyone listening, the table stakes to get in is just sign up like you would on a Facebook or anything like that. And then you have to connect the wallet. The wallets are free. And Some of these NFTs are actually also free. Like you can just hit buy, I think, but you have to pay the toll, which is the gas fee. Most of it's on Ethereum. So I think that was like a hundred US dollars. So there is still a bit of a barrier to entry. I think that's why there's other cryptos like Solana. There's always going to be an innovative product. And I love how you brought up the whole Bitcoin versus the world, because no one knows who the next Amazon or who the next Instagram is, but just play around with a little bit of everything and see where it goes. Yeah. And just a pro tip here. When I started learning about NFTs, I did it on Tezos. Tezos, it was like, you can get an NFT for five bucks and fees are going to be 10 cents. So, you know, you're not in the busiest market, but 
honestly, you don't need to be if you're just trying to figure out, hey, what is going on? Like everyone's going crazy. What is this? Yeah. I always call them like Pokemon cards. So that was my growing up with Game Boys and Pokemon and Pokemon cards. It's just a digital version of that. And I like that analogy because if you think of the holographic Charizard, it's a great analogy. It's the one everyone wants. It's more rare than others. And some Pokemon cards have, let's say, 10,000 copies. Some have a million. And NFTs are basically that way. And I think it's easy to get caught in the press of Grime selling, you know, a $60 million one or people had a big one. But my favorite, I just came across this week. There's a site called foundation.app. And what I found was people from around the world, I actually ended up messaging a couple artists to see if they want to come on just to learn because they're selling their own creative work, digital art for like two to four Ethereum, which is thousands of dollars. And imagine being anywhere around the world and being able to do that. I think it's fundamentally empowering. And the whole premise of what we talk about is how do you improve your life in your own way? And most of the threads are on your own terms, in your own style. And because it's a new space, no one's going to tell you how to do it. You have to figure it out on your own. So it kind of attracts that whole learning process. And I think the underscore here is that you said it best, which is everyone at one point is like, oh, I'm going to make a million dollars in 10 days and kind of tries to find, does it work? Can I get really rich? Because why not if it works? And then, you know, you almost have to realize that it takes time. It's not going to be overnight, but the value add there is being involved and growing with the technology, I think, is part of building up your own life. Yeah. And it takes an appetite for loss, right? Because these things are super, super high risk. You know, you have to go into it almost like you're gambling, you know, set a bankroll and be like, all right, I have thousand dollars. I'm going to be trading NFTs. This is my NFT bankroll. And if I lose it all, I know like that's fine, but I'm not going to re-up in. I'm going to learn the market and play around. That's a very good point because even with myself, as I entered to crypto in the first place, that's how I approached it. I actually was quite late getting into it, even though I loved the idea. I always thought it was brilliant in principle. But for me to actually take action, I thought because to enter into find an exchange and maybe transfer the funds was maybe a bit more complicated for me personally. But eventually, once I made the move, I decided that I'm only going to risk what I can afford to lose. If you go in with any sort of amount that you feel your emotional or your stress levels will fluctuate with the movement of the price, then you're in too big. That's as simple as that. And I think I did the right way with entering crypto and anything that I liked, I actually entered very, very relatively speaking to myself with small amounts that if they go to zero, I would not break a sweat. I think, you know what? It's the lesson learned. And I would learn something on my next move, knowing that there's something suspicious or we talked about drug pulls can happen sometimes. And that actually altered my thinking of what kind of crypto or technologies out there that I can really feel that there is proper future value or application to them that would be really useful in my opinion. And that's where I would personally rather put my money in. So it's a very good point and brings back to the risk factor. And even with these, perhaps, let's say people would put their money into Bitcoin itself or an Ether or any other crypto, for example, or even in NFTs, is that even with those, you have high volatility. Price swings go insanely up and down things that we haven't seen before. So 
it is important because ultimately you work hard for your money. You don't want to just burn it all off on a guess effectively, even if it was an educated guess. So how did your approach to crypto or even in tech, perhaps, like you mentioned, your interest there or in programming, did that help you move into other fields or is crypto really your focus? Yeah. So I'm in a little bit of everything. So I make a few startups each year. You know, some of them are very small side projects. Some of them are like, okay, we'll make a big swing and you know, try and raise funding. And I do gambling all the time. I'm a big UFC gambler. I've been doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu for years. So I like have a little bit of an advantage on that side. I do all sorts of typical investments, things like that. And as inflation and, you know, the market's gotten super hot, I've looked at like really weird stuff like investing in wine. I have a stack of Pokemon cards right next to me, like all sorts of crazy things. And I view it kind of how I mentioned with NFTs, like I take the gambling approach. I have a bankroll for this activity and, you know, I kind of look at like, hey, what's the expected value of these sorts of things? You know, if I buy Bitcoin right now, what's the expected value of it going up in 10 years? What do I think that's worth? And I try to take that practice with everything that I do. So, you know, you kind of look at, hey, what can this become? What are the odds that it becomes that? And what's the downside? And for gambling, that's super clear. You know, your bookie publishes the numbers and goes like, yeah, you know, it's probably a 40% chance you win this bet. I'll pay you out appropriately with that. And you set your own line and you learn over time, like, okay, listen, I can't bet on heavyweights and they just like demolish me. But like, I understand wrestlers. So I'm going to make bets on that with a little more conviction. Yeah. And I think that's actually how I found you. I saw a gambling related tweet on Twitter. I'm like, oh, we got to get this guy on the show because I think gambling is often misunderstood. I'm by no means like a pro at it or anything like that, but I think people misunderstand risk. And if you look at some of the heavyweights in the angel investing space or the VC world, almost all of them play poker. They understand risk. They live in the space. Whereas if you're going to be conventional, I think you're at risk of having a life you don't want and things out of your control. So how many people get pensions that are wiped out or pass away, unfortunately, because they have a health issue two years after retirement? These are the things that I think you're only a fool until you're not. So why let others control your outcome? And the term is asymmetrical risk, which is my downside is $1. But if my upside is 10 or 100 or 1,000, why not spend the dollar and see where it goes? And you framed it very beautifully, which makes me understand that you do take this seriously, number one, which is you allocate, let's say, a fund or a basket of money, which means if it goes wrong, that is exactly the maximum outcome, which is that $1,000 or that money you're spending on UFC fights. So good for you. I think that's a smart approach. For someone who doesn't like risk, what would you tell them to make them at least reconsider? Yeah, I would say set rules. So in gambling, we have unit bets. So I'll go sit down, look at my bankroll, go like, okay, you know, $1,000 bankroll, say one unit for me is $20. And there's all sorts of formulas to figure this out and crazy tools you can try and use. I would say just start with whatever you're comfortable with and you know learn more as you go. But if you go, hey, I'm going to make a one unit bet or two unit bet, but there's a cap of like two or three units for what I'll do. So I'll never bet $150 on a single instance. And this can be like buying Twitter stock. You know, this can be anything. Where are you confident that the market has it wrong? Don't let yourself just go based off gut. Because that's when people get wiped out. That's when people 
get overexcited and make mistakes. But if you go like I have a one unit threshold and I make one unit bets, you cap the downside. I kind of agree. Do you use any method? Like, do you apply the criterion? It just seems to me that you're very calculated in the way you decide your position sizing, let's say. Yeah, I have in the past. I find it's one of those things that's kind of tough for me to keep up with. Honestly, since I have a bunch of things that I do, like stock investing, crypto, gambling, and things like that, I almost make my bankrolls units and then have units within there. So I never really hit a threshold where I get wiped out. I'm a little more conservative with them because it's never like my full focus. You know, crypto drops like 20%. I'm like, that sucks. Okay, I'm going to probably make another one unit bet at some point, but I'm not too concerned about this. So I think the Kelly criteria is super important. And for people who don't know, it's like a way of managing your bankroll so it doesn't go to zero. So you're not making bets that are so much larger proportional because you're having a bad run. So if you lose 20% of your bankroll, like your bet size probably has to change proportionally. I just never am so active in one space that that really becomes too much of a risk at any one given time. But I will readjust as we go. Yeah, I think what it comes down to is People always hear the horror stories of you watch a movie and someone's betting their house. And I think it's called the risk of ruin in the poker world. But just being able to do a side project and balance your time, you're taking a bet on that. No one knows what's going to work out or what isn't. And the value back to doing a side project is learning. So why can't you apply you know, the learning process to quote unquote gambling? Why can't you say, I'm going to get better at this? and do you have, I don't know if it's like an Excel spreadsheet or do you track lifetime gains in my UFC, am I down 500 or did I make $2,000 versus like your stock portfolio? Do you have any good advice for people who want to, you know, try many things? How should they know when to not necessarily change their position size, but maybe get out of an asset class or maybe increase another one if something's working? Yeah, that's a really good point. So I don't personally track everything. I do have some spreadsheets set up. Honestly, I'm not great about keeping them up to date. There's some cool tools specifically for UFC where you enter your bets, people can follow it publicly and see your change over time. I'm not too involved in that. I think it's because I make small enough bets that you kind of see if things are growing over the span of a year or two years. I guess the real question is how many iterations do you have on that individual category? So UFC is like one card per week. And I don't bet on every fight, so it's like maybe one or two fights per card. You kind of see that growth, and it's pretty clear. Something like basketball, where it's like if you're betting on every game and basketball's happening constantly throughout the week, you can really spin up pretty quickly, and it's very important to see that trend line. But when your bankroll's small enough and you're keeping an eye on it, things aren't moving too quickly. I don't think it's too much of a concern. Right on. And I actually went to a UFC event in Toronto. I think it was the Korean zombie at the time. And it was just such a spectacular show. And I really recommend anyone who hates sports, which I'm not a big sports guy myself, but if you just go to an actual event, go to a tailgate party for football, and it's just a totally different experience, right? So I think if you want to use that analogy for learning, try and make it fun. By putting some skin in the game, I think it makes all the difference. Even if it's $100, I think that is when you start to actually care about it. Because like you said earlier, which is, no one took Bitcoin seriously, but throw $100 and maybe, yeah, you'll start checking the price and it's not enough to go bankrupt, but it's enough to care. Yeah. And I'll say like most of the things that have had huge impacts on 
how I perform day to day is like the weirdest origin points. I know more about trading stocks and markets, learning it from playing RuneScape at 14 than I learned getting a degree in economics. Same. I can relate to that too. You know, I went to school for accounting and finance and it's not until I actually got, as you put it, skin in the game that I actually learned so much more and understood so much because of that. And it became more of an interest as opposed to just something I'm trying to learn or create a career out of in the sense of just getting a job after school. So it is absolutely true. Once you're in it, you just absolutely start to gain interest because you're trying to understand how it works. How am I going to make money? You know, I have $100, $1,000, whatever the amount is. How is that going to go up by 5, 10, 15%, 1,000%? And why would it do that? And why would it go the other way? And that leads to kind of a domino effect or a chain reaction where one thing you learn and that will get you into a single term and you will wonder, okay, so what does this mean? And it just opens the doors and the possibilities of you understanding what the field is. That's same thing with crypto. Now, John and I knew each other for a long time. And to be honest, the person who really pushed me to it most was John back in, I think it was 2014. And he was talking to me about it. And he sent me a little bit of, I think it was Bitcoin at the time. He made me download a wallet and was showing me. And all I knew about it was just things that people were talking about because it was hot at the time. But he was really educating me. So he's been an advocate for a while. Not until recently, like I said, is when I really started getting invested is that when I started learning, which actually also takes me to two questions I want to ask you, by the way. First is just going back a bit. It's a bit off topic. How's the Brazilian jiu-jitsu going for you? Because I've been actually just thinking about to maybe pursuing some martial arts and it's one that I'm interested in. And second is if you want to share more about maybe your startup. So you mentioned you do like five startups a year. What are the fields that you're covering and where do they go from there? Yeah, sure. So first off, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I adore it. I'm not doing it right now because of COVID. I started going to a place and then... San Francisco got a little hairy there and went back to mask mandates. And I mean, Brazilian jiu-jitsu with a mask on, you get super sweaty and the mask just gets wet and it gets real gross and suddenly you're waterboarded in the middle of the gym. And I just couldn't do it. But I recommend that over basically every other martial art I've done. It's like chess for the whole body and you never get kicked in the head. So it's a win-win to me. And some of the startups, so I have one that I recently started in the past month. It's actually pretty relevant to the conversation. So it's called This Morning on Chain. It's a weekly newsletter. Basically, the whole premise is I want to make the morning brew for crypto. Crypto has a bunch of noise in it, not that much signal. You go on cryptocurrency on Reddit, and it's just a wall of people trying to sell you on their random cryptocurrency that they bought into. So me and my co-founder, we basically spend all week reading crypto news, trying to find what's relevant, digging into random projects and do like a five minute write up at the end of the week and have a newsletter published. And we cover some interesting stuff. I've seen like DeFi insurance. Uh, I've never heard of it before. So, you know, the DeFi space is absolutely crazy. I think it's like 60 something billion dollars. And in the news, there's always some story about getting hacked for a hundred million dollar contract or something like that. DeFi insurance covers that. They cover 2% of DeFi right now, and the entire industry is less than $1 billion. So if you go, hey, I want to make a super high risk bet that has high upside, that's an interesting industry that's just popping up in the crypto world. 
you know, could be something that ends up being nothing, could be something that ends up being pretty huge. And I never would have found that without doing this newsletter. So, you know, if no one subscribes to the newsletter, it's already like plus EV experience for me. Yeah. And that's kind of how we started the podcast. It was very much around how do we have accountability and just a record of our own growth and just through the own process, we're going to learn something. So it's pretty amazing how it's evolved. And every guest we get on just absolutely blows our mind about something new. And I think the value add by spending a little bit of time to work on a project just pays itself off pretty quickly, even though it's not a dollar equivalent to anything in particular. I think just the connections you make, the things you learn. I had no clue about DeFi insurance, but if I'm Goldman Sachs and I want to get into crypto, why wouldn't I write an insurance ticket? Because they don't want to be on the headlines for losing a billion dollars. People are going to start to lose trust in them. So it's kind of a cool mix of mitigating risk with actually staying in the space. And I think that is going to open up crypto to a lot more people if people actually have downside protection. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things that we talked about a little bit earlier here where you're terrified to send money, you're you know refreshing the page, you're tweeting them, trying to find out something about what happened. And it's because there's no assurance anywhere in the chain. If I go charge something my credit card and look at the statement and I'm like, well, that's $4,000. This was supposed to be a cup of coffee. Chase will handle that for me. There's none of that in crypto world. So I think it's one of those tools that's probably going to be needed for bigger adoption. And it may not be these companies. It may be Coinbase does the insurance protocols or who knows what happens. But I think for people to really use it on a day-to-day basis, it needs to be comfortable to use, not just efficient and convenient. So do you find that this newsletter is going to be your main focus or what are some of the other things you started? I love people who have all these projects because it means you're always thinking and you're always trying things. And the fact that you're doing five a year, the first impression I get is that you've kind of cultivated a way to do like a low cost. And funny enough, I would say low risk because you're doing so many. So someone who loves risk has found a way to make their own projects into a low risk startup and see where they go. Yeah. So it does depend on the type of the project. So before this, my project was me and a business partner. We actually started a podcast, bought a company and kind of went through that whole approach of trying to build in public and talking about this sort of third path that exists. You don't have to build a company or get hired You can go buy a company. You can go on MicroAcquire. There's good companies making 50 grand a year. and You can kind of work an angle to get that company. You can buy a full-time job that you can grow. There's this path that basically only exists for private equity right now. It's starting to get a little more popular, but we really wanted to explore that. So we bought a fitness company. It does live fitness classes online. We definitely underappreciated how much work that was going to be with having fitness coaches that we work with and not just SaaS app that just runs. That was the most recent one. Before that, I tried to do a whole VC funded thing. Physical therapy sucks. When you go to the office, they give you a print out of a piece of paper and they're like, all right, see you next Wednesday. And you know, in the time in between, like you just got surgery on your knee, you want to have some sort of communication. You want to have some sort of video. Hey, if you go too far with your leg here, it's going to hurt a little bit. Don't do that. And we just felt like there was no guidance there. There's a lot of little problems that I think I see in the world. And I just want to approach that. And I can tell you the next one that I have that I kind of want to work on, 
And I'm going back and forth because it's going to be tough, but I want to change how we do hiring. So for software engineers, when you get hired, it's like a eight hour process across four calls and you meet like 10 people. It's chaos. You have to study so you can go answer. Basically, it's a test. You have to know everything ahead of time. I got turned down for Facebook once because I answered the questions right, but not fast enough. It's a whole thing and you really do need to prep for it. I think you can just hire a company that's going under. My company for the physical therapy thing was me and three other engineers. We would have loved to have gotten hired at Google or some random company. Instead of having to go find a job, we could have just gotten a job. And maybe we all make 20 grand stock options as like bonus. We'll throw you 80 grand to buy your company. It's really distressed assets and you're bringing in a team that knows how to build things. So you touched on an interesting point there, which is just the whole unconventional aspect of how to get a job which I like. But number two, you seem to be at least interested in the acquisition space. So I have seen Micro Acquire on Twitter. Actually, a coworker and I were chatting about it because I think his idea was on the flip side, which is how do you start a small business and then go sell it beyond the sell side? So I wonder, is Micro Acquire the marketplace to go to or are there any other sites? And is there a value multiple on fully digital versus like a car wash and what's the liquidity on something like that is one business more demand than another and what's stopping you from making that business selling it for a hundred thousand dollars and then going to make another copy of it so to speak let's dig into a few things there so first off demystify buying a business because it feels like business is worth a hundred thousand dollars how could i ever possibly buy that business you never straight up buy it for the asking price if you're wiring $100,000 to someone for a business, you're probably doing it wrong or you're probably ridiculously wealthy. What you can really do is leverage these three pillars to acquisition. And it's like time to repayment, it's the dollar amount, it's the amount of the company that you're buying. So I can tell you like, hey, if this company makes 10 grand a month, I'll buy it from you for 200 grand over the next two years. Business is largely paying for itself. They have a saying where it's like, either you get the price you want or the terms you want, but you never get both. So it is a more approachable thing than people think. Mike Require, so I'm kind of biased. I know the guy who made it, Andrew Gazdek. He's just the nicest guy ever. And he's very giving. If you reach out to him, he'll come on your podcast. He'll talk to you. He'll give you advice. He's one of those people where every time you try and reach out, he's somehow always online. And they're really the first people to come to the space and make it not seem super scammy. So they filter through all the companies that want to be posted. They like punch up your entire application. They make it look like a great real company. And you just get a better, more trustable product at the end result of it. The other ones, I think there's like Flippa and Empire Flippers or something like that. They have real companies on there, don't get me wrong, but it feels like early internet there. And Microfire feels like a modern company. So I would definitely go there. For the process of selling a company, what's interesting is I think what you're saying is a good point. You can definitely make a company sell it pretty quickly. If you can show revenue, if you're actually making money, your company has real value and it's a pretty high multiple. I would say the multiples on internet companies are way higher just because the target audience is way higher than the five miles distance for your coffee shop or something like that. You're inherently constricted if you have a physical location that does things only in your local area. Internet companies can kind of scale infinitely. It really depends on what they are, but for the most part, it's easier to make money and keep that funnel full instead of like capping out. You know, if you're selling pools in your local area, there's only so many pools you can sell until everyone has a pool. 
That's amazing. Maybe you can give him a shout and we'd love to have him on the podcast. That'd be awesome. When it comes down to what you're talking about, my limited understanding is about, you know, how fast is a company growing? So I think something like an angel investor or VC who wants to make a return on their money is looking for growth because they don't want to just write you a check and then have you go buy a bunch of laptops and close up your business. It's a waste of money. So on the investment side, there has to be the ability to probably 100 or 1,000x if you're looking on the angel side because they've got to cover their other investments and they want to make a good return, right? There's a lot of risk that way and it's balanced out by making 20 investments a year, talking to a thousand companies. So I wonder for yourself, what's your process like when you're vetting a company to actually buy and write a check? Do you go through a hundred and maybe buy one or do you already have a niche you want to focus on and then just drill down on maybe 10 companies and go from there? Yeah. So going to be honest, I've only done this once so far. We have vetted probably 50 companies to buy this one. But I'm far from being a pro here. I've talked to a few pros, but I'm not the number one guy. So what I look at, I look at it kind of like an angel investor, but in a different way. Angel investors, like you said, when you make an investment, you are making an investment for this company to make back the entire fund. If you make a thousand bets at ten thousand dollars, you're like, okay, this has to make all of that money back on this one bet. They're really swinging for the fences there. What I'm looking at is can this company grow? And I'm actually looking at, is it not really growing all that much? Because if it's growing 5x a year, they're probably not selling it. And if they are, they're probably selling it for a ridiculous multiple, or there's some reason they're selling it. I'm looking for like, hey, what are you not doing? What's your marketing strategy look like? Are you not running ads? Have you ever run ads? How did that go? What's your website look like? Are you using best practices? You know, is there a big red sign up button when you land on the homepage? What are all the things that you know, I know you should be doing and everyone else is doing, but you're not? I think it depends on what type of business you're working on. So there's some people we've talked to who do SEO businesses only, and they basically look at how many backlinks do you have? How many people have referenced your website? Where do you show up on Google? Can this fit into like a bigger play? Can I take your vacuum SEO blog and point that towards my vacuum store on Amazon? There's a lot of people building ecosystems and just incrementally increasing their ecosystems. And a lot of people are doing this in Shopify too. So they have Shopify consultancies and they upsell on you know, different apps. They have this Shopify store and they buy apps that they need to use and sell that. I think a big play there is the ecosystem play rather than just the one-off buy. Yeah, it's amazing how many different ways you can make money. And that's actually a smart approach because if you see value where others don't, that's the fundamental truth to investing. And you're essentially buying a piece of a company when you buy a stock. So, I mean, there's quite a few differences, but the principle is the same, which is where is no one looking? And if you know how to apply your skills to go out and make that business 2x than what it's doing, then it's undervalued. And then you can essentially make your money back faster. And then, you know, I can totally see you having a portfolio of businesses. And then you can even throw in, I think, in the dealership space, what we have is one person starts a dealership that's very well. And when you think of their process, they'll essentially copy and paste. And then what you have in our local market is two, three, four big dealer groups who own 20. And then they'll just copy and paste the model. 
and they have downside protection because they'll almost always own the real estate or they'll have brand resilience. If you own all the brands out there, it doesn't matter which one's doing well, they're all going to print money. So is that kind of a goal of yours to have one, two, five businesses that essentially do well, put them on autopilot, they all grow and thrive. And then maybe you sell one to buy the next one, but you'll essentially have a portfolio. You'll be like the kingpin of many businesses in your market. Yeah. So I can tell you right now, my plan with this newsletter, one is just to educate myself, like what's going on in the world. Everything's kind of crazy with crypto. But two, it's like, yeah, I'll run some ads on there, all that stuff. I'm also going to make a crypto job board and kind of do job placement and the two will feed each other there. And then, you know, have like a crypto community. So like we'll have a discord and as things grow, now you have like this whole community play and, you know, launch into the NFT newsletter space and have a podcast. And I plan on expanding it to be everything that I wish was all in one somewhere. And then maybe I do it in a different domain. I like the fitness domain. It's really tough and really competitive, but I think there's a lot of bad information out there. And anywhere where there's bad information, being able to be the trusted source and grow a community from that point of, hey, this is good insight. I trust this person. I trust this company. I think that's the most defensible place to be. And that's the easiest place to grow from. Yeah, that's really cool. And I can see the leverage and the value add. Each piece will add to each other between each space. And I think if you're new to a space, you can just go into a rabbit hole of each little piece. And then you'll have these subscribers who just get an abundance of information. And, you know, what's low cost to no cost, I think that's all it takes is do something useful and adding value to the world can come in so many different ways. If it's useful to you, it's probably useful to one, two or 10 other people and just multiply that over and over as people find you. And that's a recipe, right? What do you find in the whole ad space? Do you have good experience? Is it useful to try and jumpstart your newsletter and pay some money to readers? Will that then have like a 1.5 return on every paid subscriber may bring two or three friends? Is there any virality aspect to that? Does paying for ads make sense versus the organic approach? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of a flywheel, right? So you start off pushing and eventually, you know, you're pushing this wheel and you take your hands off and just keeps moving by itself. I haven't gotten there yet. So I've tried some ads. They're okay, but it's really interesting to control for where the ads land. If you just go like, hey, let me try and get anyone subscribed to this newsletter. You have to really worry about the quality of people. You can get newsletter subscribers pretty cheap and you can end up making money on that lifetime value return. But honestly, every single newsletter subscriber is probably going to be a bot from a country you've never heard of. I know that was the first 15 people who came in from ads on Google. I know in this space, there's two major things that work. One is crossover events. You go talk to Pomp and go like, hey, let me write for your newsletter. You write for mine and we'll like shout each other out. That works really well. The other thing that works is SEO, but SEO takes a long time. So ranking on Google, it takes one month. It seems like it's probably three months on average. And I've seen some people say they haven't gotten anything. It took them 12 months. So the SEO play is really slow. And that's another reason why buying a business a year or two old and they have some SEO ranking in there, they can upgrade and move up the ranks pretty quickly. But that zero to one on the SEO side is really, really rough. I personally send out like 300 direct messages on Reddit every week. 
And, you know, the people who respond and like it are happy and hyped to get some signal there. But it's, you know, it's like any other sales, getting a one to 5% success rate. Yeah, it's an odds game, really. And John and I, again, both come from a sales background, so completely get what you're talking about here. And I got to say, I'm incredibly intrigued in your way of thinking in terms of how you can come up with ideas of shortages and things you mentioned quite earlier in the episode with maybe the hiring processes or how a company treats its promotional side, whether it was advertising or how their website looks like. So you look at things that a lot of people I think don't do or sometimes maybe overlook is probably the better term here. So I think you really have something that I'm just sitting maybe perhaps not talking as much just because I'm very, very interested in what you have to say. And I'm really learning a lot from you here. I appreciate that. I've learned a lot listening to this podcast, so I'm glad to give back a bit. That's awesome. And here's an idea. So the job market sucks, as you said. And I think my first jobs when I was 19, I went on Kijiji. And then now we have Indeed. I don't know if Indeed is in the States or not, but it's pretty big in Canada. So I remember once, I think I wanted to get a job in the crypto actually, and I applied to Coinbase, which I got no response because I'm probably on paper, unqualified, never heard from them. And you're basically a totally qualified engineer and Facebook had some nuanced criteria or just too many applicants. So CoinSquare, I actually had interviewed, but the job they were hiring for wasn't really commensurate to what I wanted. Like I couldn't leave my day job to just go there, but I went through the process and they were like, you've been doing this car thing for like 10 years. And in the tech space, you're a dinosaur if you haven't jumped every year and a half, right? I guess as the saying goes, but what I thought would be kind of interesting just to throw this idea out there So use something like a Fiverr where you can do on-demand work. If you're going to do an ecosystem, what if you had a marketplace that, for example, in the newsletter space, you could throw someone contract work, pay them in crypto, because I think that's a nascent area that hasn't really developed. You've got the Andreas Antonopoulos, who is probably the biggest advocate and earliest advocate for getting 100% paid in crypto, which I think is brave. It's a statement. He's a missionary but not really realistic. So just an idea on how to mix the whole side hustle culture with, I think there's such a demand for people to get paid on the side for small projects. You get paid for your time. You know, the most famous, I guess, are something like an Amazon Mechanical Turk or a Fiverr. So why don't you somehow grow this ecosystem to pay people solely in crypto so it makes it exciting? And number two, you could become like the de facto marketplace for that and for contract work and connecting people all over the world and just totally breaks the mold of what hiring means. Because I think even myself, if I could drop in half an hour, an hour a week and get paid for something like a writing skill or just basic skills that I might have. And if you can match the two, I think people would chase you down and say, I'll take any coin. I'll do this for this. And all of a sudden, you've capitalized people and empowered people as opposed to just compute power. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I do plan on building out a job board. That's actually going to be my afternoon working on this job board. So I think that's a really good idea. I'm going to sit on that one and see what I can come up with there. And for anyone listening, feel free to take any of my ideas here. You know, They're just ideas. If you can go execute and do it well, please do it. I would love to not have to build any of this. It'd be great if it just existed. 
So if anyone out there wants to go do this, I think you start exactly how you said, go, hey, this is a small niche. Let's do content writing. You get paid in crypto. We know exactly who the target audience is. You can kind of grow organically from there and get other avenues. I think that's an amazing idea. And it's easy enough for you to even hide behind the sheets. You know, like company A that wants to come get someone to work on their content writing, they'll pay us in dollars. We'll do a point of sale execution to actually get the crypto and give you the crypto. When that payment is done, you don't even need to get these people to like buy into paying in crypto. Yeah, exactly. And no, I think it's cool. And I just love this process of coming up with things and no one's got all the time or the space or the funds necessarily, but there's something unique about just creating and building that I think I admire in people. And you're definitely a shining example of that with all your passion projects and all this. So definitely wish you all the best success moving forward. Definitely keep in touch. And I'm going to encourage all of our listeners, if they want to be a part of what you're doing, definitely reach out to you directly. And maybe you'll get some people around the world who want to get paid in crypto and then you'll have proof of concept and they'll be knocking on your door. So where can people find you, Nick? What's the best way to find you on social? How can they sign up for your newsletter? Yeah, I really appreciate it. And we'll have to do like an exchange episode with my podcast and yours. We'll cross over there. You guys can find me on Twitter at Scalfino. My last name is Scalf and then I and O. My friends made fun of me for being Italian as a kid and it's just kind of stuck. My podcast is Buy, Build, Pod. Me and my co-founder, we interview people and kind of dig into the whole build in public type of thing with our fitness company. And then the newsletter is this morning on chain. Awesome. Thanks so much. Once again, it's been amazing. Love talking crypto and business. It's been awesome. We're definitely going to make an appearance and we'd love to join you there. And we're going to be subscribers for sure. Awesome. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Nick, just want to add, you know, sometimes an hour is just not enough. So yeah, I would love to chat again and all the best. We'll be following you. Absolutely. Same to you guys. Wonderful. Thanks a lot. So with that said, let's wrap up today's episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of Methodical Millions, where you can better your future and better yourself. Thanks, everyone.